Turn to Psalm 1 with me. Psalm chapter 1. We are in our final sermon today in this series in Psalm chapter 1 called Like a Tree. And we're going to be looking into this last verse of Psalm 1, verse 6. But what I want to do as we begin is I want to read the entire psalm uh, as a reminder of where we've been in this series, as a reminder of what psalm this psalm is all about. And then we're going to uh, dive into specifically verse 6 and uh, look for God's truth for us this morning. Psalm chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. Um, if you need a Bible, there might be a couple in the back. Uh, if, if, if you are um, new to the Bible, just open up, open up your Bible right in the middle and you're going to find the Psalms. Psalm 1, starting with verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Let's go ahead and pray. God, open up our eyes to this uh, passage today, uh, specifically as we dive into this sixth verse of this psalm. Lord, you, you've taught us so much. I, I, uh, you've grown us in so many ways, uh, even through this, through this one psalm, just opening our eyes to the, this truth of Jesus Christ and what the gospel means for us, uh, those of us who are new to Christ and those of us who have been with Christ for years and years, what it still means for us and what it means to be rooted in Christ like a tree. And so I pray that you continue to do that work in our hearts even this morning, that you solidify your truth in us, that you convict us of the places that we have yet to go in our lives, that you open us our, our eyes up to, uh, to, to our failures. Um, but God, as you do that, as you show us our sin and as you show us our failures, that we will all the more see Christ and that we will grow in an understanding of his grace. And so then while we are more and more aware of our sin, we are more and more aware of his grace. And God, as we are more aware of his grace, we find more joy and happiness in this life as a tree. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, if you've watched any of the presidential debates, um, over the last couple weeks, uh, you may have noticed what I have noticed, and that is um, that nobody's telling the truth, <laughs> right? Um, this guy says something, and it's time for this guy to talk, and he walks out and he says, well, that's just not true. And he talks and says what he thinks is true. The other guy comes out um, and uh, says, well, that's just not true. And uh, isn't, that uh, isn't that the debate? 
that's not true. He's not telling the truth. And um, so sometimes we're either like left when we're, when we're looking at this time of this time of year. Every four years, going to be voting on a president. We're looking at the country. We're looking at the economy. Um, we've got some big issues in our country: social security, debt, uh, the the economy, uh, jobs that are not being found. Uh, a welfare system that's, that's like an addiction and it's keeping the poor poor and, and then it seems that sometimes politicians don't really care for the poor and we don't know if they care for the poor and, and then we're confused with morals and, and, we're, and then we're listening to, to debates uh, during election season and nobody seems to be telling the truth or we don't know what's going on. Like seriously, we just like laugh scratching our heads. Who's, so either they're both like completely confused, or one of them's a complete liar, right? Um, and, we, and we often are just left disillusioned. We're left wondering, scratching our heads. We're left wondering, um, is there any real hope? I mean, is there anybody that can really fix some of these problems that we currently have in our country? Is there anybody that can, that can fix the, the problems that we've caused over years? Is there anybody? I mean, is there any real hope in life? Listen, um, what, what we've been doing in Psalm 1, what we've been learning from Psalm 1 is this. There is real hope in life. And it's not found in all of the places that we've looked for it in the past. There is real happiness in life. And it's not where you thought it would be. You see, the chaff look to temporary things for happiness. The chaff look to uh, temporary things for hope and for security. What the Bible says is that in this world there really isn't hope. Not in and of this world alone. Not in and of the flesh alone. Not in the things that we search for hope in. Not in the things that we try to find happiness in. There's no real hope there, but there is indeed hope. So Psalm 1 then is, is this doorway, which is why we've spent so much time in it. If, we, if we're going to understand the Psalms and in some ways the rest of the Bible, we have to understand this doorway of Psalm 1 that's swinging open for us. And what it says, what it's been saying over and over is that there are two ways to live. There is the way of the chaff, and there is the way of the tree. And the chaff find no real hope, even in things that that look good. I mean, you can plow a pretty impressive stream with a speedboat in the ocean, right? And create this wake that's beautiful, but it's not going to last very long. The ocean quickly covers it back up. That's the life of the chaff. They find hope in things. They find hope in, in happiness and things which are quickly fading. And what the Bible's saying specifically here in Psalm 1 is that there is no hope and there is no happiness where we thought it was. There's no happiness in this, this way of the chaff. However, when we look at the tree, when we look at the way of the tree, what we find is that there's happiness. You see, with, with chaff... 
We're trying to find happiness in things like the flesh, the desires of the flesh, lust. There's no real happiness in lust. Yet how often do people try to find it there? How often do people try to find hope in lust? Yet what does lust do? It only wants you, uh, leave, or, or, or wanting, it leaves you wanting for more. You're craving for more flesh, more of that, more satisfaction, a greater satisfaction, more whatever. Greed, same thing. We try to find our hope in greed. We try to find our happiness through greedy practices. But what does it leave us with? It leaves us wanting for more money. And raise your hand if you have enough money in this life. <laughs> One of you raise your hand. That's awesome. Praise God for that. Um, but, but really, I mean, think about it. We never have enough. You never, 10, 000, if I could get $10,000 more, then I would be happy, then I would be secure. No, you wouldn't. You get it, and all of a sudden you need more, another 10000 We need a better job. We need a better house, a bigger house. We always are left wanting for more because there's no real happiness, only temporary satisfaction in this life. And so chaff, the chaff, are constantly going after these temporary things, trying to find something that's deep there and something that's significant there and something that roots them and they never can find it. But the way of the tree. The trees find their roots in something much deeper than the the temporary, in something much deeper than the flesh. The trees find their roots in eternity itself, in God himself, and they find a satisfaction that not only gives them true joy and true happiness and true satisfaction in in the here and in the now, but they find a satisfaction that lasts beyond this world and a satisfaction that goes into all of eternity. So what we're going to do today, Psalm 1 closes with this prophecy, this final prophecy looking at the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. And what we see is that the, the, the trees or the righteous have real hope. And so what is the hope of the righteous. Let's look at verse 6 with me. If you have your Bibles, um, for the Lord, it says in verse 6, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Now this is taking us back to verse 1 of Psalm, Psalm chapter 1. Going back to this contrast between the righteous and the wicked, the trees and the chaff. The psalm starts by saying the righteous don't walk in the way of the sinners, right? And now what it's saying is, going, going back to the beginning, it's saying that instead, the Lord knows the way of the righteous. He knows their way. But the way of the sinners, the way of the wicked, the way of the chaff will perish, will be destroyed, is no is no more. What we find is that those who are aware of their sins, those who open their eyes to the fact that they're indeed a sinner, for them there is no doom. For them there is no devastation. Why? Because as God opens us up to our sin, He opens us up to the cross and we see Jesus. And so what we find then in Psalm 1, even though there is this 
doom, this, this um, prophecy of the chaff who will be forever destroyed. For the, uh, there, there is no reason any single one of us needs to walk out of this school building today feeling doomed, feeling guilty, worrying, being scared. Because as God makes us aware of our sin, he makes us aware of Jesus. And we look to Jesus. And there we find, there we find hope. So what we're going to do today, this is kind of where we're going. A little roadmap, if you would. We're going to first ask this question, who are the righteous? And it's a question we've already asked, but I want to ask it one more time. Because it's also a question that kind of keeps coming back up in conversations that I have with folks throughout the week. Who is the righteous people? Am I part of the righteous? How can I claim to be righteous? Who are the righteous? That's the first question we're going to ask. And then from there, we're going to uh, try to understand what it means that God then knows the way of these righteous people. So first, who are the righteous? Who are the righteous? Are you part of the righteous? I wonder how you would answer that this morning. Are you in this group of people known as, called right here in Psalm 1, the righteous? I mean, who would have the audacity to raise their hand if I asked for a call of hands, a show of hands, and say, I'm part of the righteous? Who would have the audacity? Someone might say, I thought it said in Romans, in one of Paul's letters to the church, I thought, thought it said in Romans that there are no righteous. There is no one who does good. Are there any righteous people? And if Paul's right, then how can David here in Psalm 1 say that there are a group of people that are righteous? And how do we know for sure if we're part of that group and how do we have the audacity to be able to stand in front of someone else and say, I am righteous? I wonder if you can do that today. Paul in Romans uh, indeed says, there is no one that is righteous. No, not one, right? Everybody know that verse? It's in the New Testament. Paul is actually paraphrasing, it's a direct paraphrase of David himself in Psalm 14. So flip over a couple chapters, a couple pages, and find Psalm 14. And I want you to see where David is paraphrasing, where he is um, God is inspiring him to write those words. Psalm chapter 14, verses 1 through 5, it says this, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside together. They, they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. So David now is paraphr- or Paul later paraphrases, paraphrases that and says, there is none who is righteous, no, not one. Meaning the same thing that David is saying here. There is none. There is zero. There is absolutely nobody out there who does good. No one, meaning without Christ, outside of the life of Christ, looking at our lives, looking at your life itself, just, just imagining your life, just thinking about your life, there's nobody that does good. There's nobody that in and of ourselves are righteous. So are there any righteous people? Let's go on with chapter 14. 
Look at verse 4. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers, who eat up my... Uh, who, who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord. Verse 5, they are in great terror. Look at this. For God is with the generation of the righteous. For God is with the generation of the righteous. So what David is saying is, is first of all, there's nobody who does good, and there, but, but then there are these evildoers, if you would, who should be trembling, for God is with, he says, the generation of the righteous. So what David is saying, even there, is that there is a generation of people who you can look at and call righteous. These are the righteous people. Where we ended last week was with this reality that for sinners, who have opened their eyes to their sin and they have looked to Christ and they've seen God's punishment placed on Christ on their behalf and they put their trust into Jesus, they can then boldly approach the throne of God, right? So the righteous then are not perfect people. The righteous people are simply people who have been made righteous because of Christ. Because Christ was perfect. So these are the redeemed. These are those who have opened their eyes to their sin and they've believed in Jesus. They've put their trust in Jesus and they've repented. They've walked away from their former life. And so then it says in Psalm 1-6, it says that for these folks, the, this righteous generation or these, these trees, if you would, that God knows their way. God knows the way of the righteous. So what does that mean? First, that was the first question that popped into my head as I'm studying this. What does that mean? That God knows the way. Does it mean that God is simply um, all-knowing? So he knows everything that you're doing, everything that the righteous person is doing. He knows where they're going. He knows what they're eating. And, so, and then he also knows, he can sort of see through the tunnels of time and he can, he can foresee uh, where they're going to spend eternity and that happens to be in heaven. Does it just simply mean that God is all-knowing? And it, it can't mean that because God also in that same sense, knows the way of the wicked. And he knows that the wicked will perish. So it's actually referring to a different kind of knowledge, not just simply a knowledge of facts. But it, it refers to a different kind of knowledge. So I've actually got three different meanings for you today, all right? And, and I think they're all um, true and rooted in the Scriptures and congruent with, with one another. And they are this. Uh, first of all, that God recognizes the way of the righteous. Second, that God watches over the way of the righteous. And third, that God approves of the way of the righteous. And so we're going to dive into those three meanings. So first, God recognizes the way of the righteous. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. The word know right there in the Hebrew is the word yada. Everybody say yada, you Hebrew scholar. And this, this is a very general word that means Guess what? What do, what do you think it means? Knows. You guys, are you guys paying attention this morning here? <laughs> Come on now. It's a very general word that just simply means knows, like a knowledge. However, it's, there's all these different facets to it. So while it means 
um, a knowledge of facts, which we've already ruled out. It doesn't just, even though God is omniscient, he is all-knowing, it's not just referring to the fact that he knows all the facts. This word knows is also used in a variety of different ways. One of, one of the ways that it's used in the Hebrew scriptures is in Genesis, where it says, Adam knew Eve and they had a baby. That kind of knowledge, if you know what I mean. That is an intimate, all-knowing kind of knowledge. There is this intimate peace, this intimate level of God's knowledge of the righteous that is all-knowing, that is complete, that is, that is absolute love. I, I love Jesus' teaching in John 10. Um, if you want to turn, I'm going to go to two different verses in John 10 if you want to turn there. In John 10, it's, it's the winter time, and he's walking around the temple. And, and as he's walking through the temple, he, Jesus is approached by, uh, by, by various skeptics. And they, they stop him, and they want to have a conversation with him. And they, and they say, look, when, when are you going to tell us uh, whether or not you're the Messiah? Like, how long, Jesus, are you going to keep us in suspense? Are you or are you not the Christ, they ask him. And Jesus looks at them and he responds. He says, look, I've told you. All right? I've, I've said these things. But you don't hear me and you don't believe me because, he says, you are not my sheep. You're not my sheep. So I'm talking, you're not, you're not, it's not, con- the words that I'm saying are not connecting with, with, with first your brain and then your heart. You're not actually hearing these things. And then he says, my sheep know me. They hear my voice. And look what he says in verse 27 in John, cha- or John chapter 20, or John chapter 10. Verse 27, he says, my sheep hear my voice and I, what's the word? Know them. This is the same Greek equivalent for the Hebrew word, yada. I know them, and they follow me. This is like an intimate kind of recognition. Like, I, I know them. As an example, I know a lot of kids. Um, if you have kids in this church, I know your kids. I know their names. Um... I might know their ages. I'm really bad at that. I have a general concept of who your kids are. I know a lot of kids. I know my nieces and my nephews. But not like I know my kids. Right? I mean, not, I, mean I know my kids on a whole different level. And if you're a parent, you would say the same thing. Like, Joel, I know your kids, but not like I know, I know my kids. I mean, I know... I know my kids in this sense of like, like this intimate kind of recognition. That there could be this crowd of students up on a stage and doing their thing and my, one of my kids is up there and I, and I see them and I know them. Like I, I recognize them immediately. Like that's, I see the way that they move. I know their faces. I see my image plastered on their faces, especially Eden's. <laughs> I know these kids, they're mine, they're my image, this is my, this is my, they're my pride, they're my joy, I, they're mine. I, I know them. This is what Jesus is referring to. Like I, I mean, I know everybody, Jesus might say, but I know my sheep. 
I have this intimate recognition of my sheep. I know their face. I look at them and I see my image plastered upon their face. I see my blood which has been spilled on them and has covered their sins. I, I, I recognize them as the ones who I have bought with a price and they're mine. I know them. God knows the righteous. God knows the way of the righteous with a very intimate recognition. He recognizes them. Jesus also recognizes the way the, white, the righteous are walking. So there's kind of two types of recognition here. This, this sense of like intimate, I know you. And then there's also like this, the, the way of the righteous. Like the, they're not walking according to the way of sinners, according to the way of the wicked, but rather they're walking a, in, a, in a way that he recognizes. Like, like he, he, God would look at the way of the wicked and he would say, it's foreign to me. Like I, I don't understand that. This isn't, I mean, I'm seeing what they're doing and I, I know what they're doing factually, but I, I don't understand. That's not the way I created them to live. That's not the way I designed them to be. This way of the wicked, the way of the sinner is absolutely foreign to God. I didn't design them to use their strength in that way. I didn't design them to use their intellect for their own glory. I didn't design them to use their sexuality just simply for their own pleasure. I didn't design them to, 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 to pursue happiness and joy in these temporary things. Like This doesn't make any sense. That's, this way is foreign to God. But he looks at the way of the righteous. He looks at the way of those who are covered by the blood of Christ, who walked according to the precepts of God, who lived the life as a human is created to live. He looks at those who then have Jesus' image plastered on their face, and they are daily being conformed to his image. Daily. The word is sanctified. Everybody say sanctified. We are daily becoming more and more sanctified. We're becoming more and more like Jesus. We're becoming holier. We're looking more and more the way humans were supposed to look and act and walk. And God looks at the way of the righteous and he says, ah, I recognize that. This is the way humans were meant to live. This is the way I designed them to love one another. This is the way I designed them to relate to one another. This is the way I designed them to take care of each other. I know this. I, I, I recognize this. God recognizes the way of the righteous. That's the first one. The second one is this, second meaning. God watches over the way of the righteous. Now, if you have an NIV translation, the New International Version, it literally translates this, the, the, the Lord watches over uh, the righteous. And that's a very good translation. The word no right there has this connotation of uh, observance and watching over. We, going back to the story of Jesus, if you're still in John chapter 10 right there, look at the next verse, verse 28. Jesus said this, speaking of his sheep, who he knows, his sheep that he recognizes, like these, these are mine, I know them. He says this about them, he says, I give them eternal life 
and they will never perish. Then look at the next phrase. No one, he says, will snatch them out of my hand. No one will, these sheep that I know, that I recognize, they're mine. My face is on them. My blood is on them. I've got them in my hands and nobody is going to take them away. No one is going to snatch them from my hands. I am watching over their souls like a hawk. Pastor John Piper, going on a year ago, spoke at a conference and he was reflecting on his age and his years in ministry just as he's, as he's getting older. And he said this, he said, I've been a Christian for 60 years. And after 60 years of being a Christian, he said this, I'm amazed that I'm still a Christian. I'm amazed that I'm still a Christian. When, when, when I think of my sin, when I, when, I, when, I, when I think of my failures, when I, when I consider the many times that I've been frustrated with my life and with my faith and with my church and with God, when I have considered the many times that I've nearly just thrown in the towel on the whole thing and just walked away from it all, when I've considered how many times I've been, been disillusioned and frustrated and just wanted to quit church altogether, it amazes me that I'm still a Christian. And he, Piper might say, it amazes me that I'm going to finish well. It, it actually looks, that I'm, looks like I'm going to finish this course, that I'm going to finish this race and I'm going to finish it well, that I'm going to persevere until the end. It's amazing to me. And guys, when I consider my own life, when I look back at my own journal entries, my goodness, your journals, if you, if you journal, they can be hard to read sometimes, can't they? When I look back at my own writings, my own journals, and I look back on my own life and I consider the many times that I have slipped, the many times I have fallen, the many times I have been, been just simply overwhelmed with sin, the many times that I have doubted, the many times I've wondered if it's all worth it, if, if, this, if this life of just continuing to pursue after what I believe to be true, if it's worth it, and these, these doubts and these frustrations and these failures, when I look back over my own life and where I'm at right now, and I, I consider these things, I say, wow, I am, I am personally also amazed that I'm still a Christian. I'm blown away that I'm actually right now, standing in front of you, speaking about the Bible in love with Jesus. It blows me away. And listen, I know my own heart. All right, I know my own capabilities. And what I know is this. When I consider the rest of my life, when I consider the next, I don't know, let's say 30, 40, 50 years of living, Lord willing, and I know that over the, next, over the next 30 or 40 or even 50 years of life that I have to continue in the Lord, that I have to remain in Christ, that I have to remain with Him, that I have to continue this pursuit of sanctification, of growth, of be, becoming more and more 
made in the image of Christ, looking more and more like Jesus every day, and I, and I look at the next 30 or 40 or 50 years, and I'm like, man, I have to continue with this thing. Like, I can't stop believing what I believe. I have to remain in Christ until the end. I know myself. I know my own heart. And what I know it to be true is this. If I am the only one watching over my soul, I am sunk. I mean, if it is up to me to persevere until the end, to keep believing until the end, to keep trusting until the end, to, keep, to, to remain faithful until the end, if it's up to me, I don't have what it takes. But what we find in the scriptures, and we're, we're getting the sense in Psalm 1-6 that he knows the way, and the, the sense that he's watching over the righteous. He's watching over your soul. My sheep, they hear me, and I know them, I recognize them, and they will inherit eternal life. They will not perish. I have them in my hand, and no man is going to pluck them from my hand. Amen. Beginning of uh, this series, I told the story of um, my daughter and I walking through the woods. If you remember that story, Jaden and I, we were walking through the woods and we got like sort of deep into the woods and I said, hey, go ahead and lead the way home. You, you guys remember me telling this? And we get about, um, <clears throat> I don't know, about a quarter of a mile and she's freaking out. Like I looked down and she has tears in her eyes. What, what, what was her assurance that day? What was her salvation that day? I mean, she knew that she, in and of herself, that she couldn't make it. She knew in and of herself, like, I can't get from here back to the cabin. I can't do it. What was her assurance? It's when she realized, and when I reassured her that I know the way, and that I'm watching over you, like, you will get home. You will get there. I know it seems distant. I know it's getting dark. And I know you have no clue where we're at, but I do. I know where we're at. I know where we're going. We're going to get you home. And I will grab your hand and I will lead you. When, and, and look, if, if I need to pick you up and carry you, I will carry you. you I'm not going to lose you. You're mine. I'm watching over you right now. This is the promise that we receive from the Scriptures. The Lord is watching over your soul. For those of you who have repented of your sins and you've looked to Jesus, be, take, take heart in the fact that God is watching over you. God knows the way home and He is leading you there and He will not let you miss it. I give it eternal life, Jesus said, <clears throat> and my sheep will never perish. No one will snatch them from my hands. Be amazed this morning that you are still a Christian. Be amazed. Like, look at your life. Ask yourself, if it was up to me to be where I'm at today, the fact that I'm sitting in a church, knowing what happened to me in the past, knowing how, how, how I was just like jaded, disillusioned, questioning, and I'm sitting here today 
be amazed that God has brought you this far and be assured and take heart in the fact that he will remain with you. He will watch over you. He will keep you in the palm of his hand and no one will snatch you from his hand. Thirdly, third meaning for this, God knows the way of the righteous. God approves of the way of the righteous. So he recognizes the righteous. I know you. He's watching over the righteous. You're coming with me. You're going home. And he approves of the life of the righteous. Now this blows your mind when you really consider it and think about it. This sense of knowledge which, which, means, which, which brings us to this concept of approval that God approves of us. Charles Spurgeon uh, on this very verse, commenting on it, the great theologian pastor that I named my son after, um, his middle name was Haddon. Spurgeon, Spurgeon said, um, in, in the same way that, uh, that God reproves or does not approve of the wicked, and God says, depart from me, I never knew you, Right? In that same way, the fact that he knows the righteous means that he approves of them. So for Spurgeon, what he's basically saying is, is look, there's either approval or disapproval. There is no in-between. God either looks at you and he says, depart from me, I never knew you, or he looks at you and he says, well done. Well done. I approve. I approve of your life. Someone might say, now hold up. Um, There will be some that get to heaven, but God doesn't really approve of their life, right? I mean, won't some walk through the pearly gates? And as they're walking through, it's like, all right, you made it in. And you kind of get a scowl. like You got a mansion in the back. All right. Then someone else chimes in and says, well, not every Christian will hear well done, right? I mean, not everybody that gets to heaven as a Christian is going to stand before God and hear God say well done. Don't we have to work for that? I mean, don't we have to earn that well done? There's, there's actually a popular phrase in the Christian world that, that goes like this. It says, it's easy to get to heaven, but it's hard to get a well done. We have to work for it. And then someone else might chime in and say, well, believing in Jesus and the cross and his blood, that got me salvation, kind of got me across the bridge, but now, now I have to work to earn God's approval. I mean, so I'm I'm good, I got my ticket out of hell, but I've got to work now to earn some favor from God. I've got to work to earn some approval from, from God. Did Jesus' blood earn God's approval on your behalf or did it not? Is there more work that needs to be done outside of the blood of Christ? Was the blood of Christ not sufficient to cover 
not only the sins at conversion, but all of the sins for the rest of your life? Or is there more work that needs to be done on our part? Is there more blood that needs to be spilled? (coughs) Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4, it says this. I need to read this to you. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4, it says this. By a single offering, so by one offering, all right, not two, not three, not one big offering and then a whole bunch of little offerings that humans do, but by one single offering, which was the death of Jesus Christ, his life that was lived to utter perfection, earning the approval of the Father, his death on the cross in which he bled for our sins, our punishment was placed onto him, he died, he rose again from the dead. One single offering, by a single offering, he has perfected for how long? For all time. He has perfected for all time. That means like now, today, going back to the day that you were converted. That means in, the, in 10 years from now. That means in 30 and 40 years from now. That means after you screw up, after you mess up, after you doubt. For all time, He perfected those who are still like not yet there, being sanctified. <laughs> I mean, are we tracking with this? So, so there's like this, this generation of the righteous who don't have it all together. They're still being sanctified. God's still working out salvation in them. They're still becoming, they still sin. They still mess up. Yet they are perfected. They're done. It's done. The work is done. There was one single offering that perfected for all time. And see, we don't really believe this, do we? I mean, let's be honest. We think um, God approves of us when we're reading the Bible, right? God approves of us when we are singing in church. God approves of us when we are doing something good. God approves of us when we're not sinning. God approves of us when we're praying to Him. God approves of us when we're helping someone who is less fortunate than us. God approves of us when when we create something that he's proud of. God approves of us when we dot, 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 fill in the blank, right? But for all time, for all, like even when we're in the midst of our sins, God approves of us. When we are when we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, God approves of the way of the righteous. Jesus' sacrifice, his one sacrifice on the cross was not sufficient only to get you from heaven to hell, but it was sufficient now, today, and for the rest of your life and for all of eternity. Christ has, has earned God's approval for you. And God looks at your life and He approves of it. For you who are trees, for you who have repented of your sin and you've looked to Christ and you've 
received Christ as your Savior, God looks at your life and He approves of your life. For those of you who have fallen into sin, you've recently fallen, maybe last night you fell into sin, what you needed to know this morning is that God approves of your life. For those of you who are doubting and you're wondering and you're like, man, this is just hard to wrap my mind around. I mean, I trust and I believe, but I'm struggling. Listen, God approves of your life. For those of you who are struggling with your self-image and wondering if you're good enough and if you have enough of what it takes to do something in this world that pleases God, God already approves of your life. God approves of your life. Completely. 100%. Perfectly. But we don't really believe that. We, we struggle believing that, don't we? That God approves of me right now. Knowing who I am. Knowing the ongoing sins that I struggle with. That God approves. And even though we kind of believe in grace, we, we also deny grace at the same time. And we sort of move back into the law. We, 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 we begin trying to work for our salvation. We begin trying to earn our salvation. We try, to, we try to earn God's approval. Let me break it down for you. I've used this example before. You've, let's say you've got a big test coming up. What do you do for three days before the test? Well, you study. And you pray. And you try not to sin. Right? If it's a Sunday, you're going to be in church for sure. Because I've got a test coming up. And I need to ask some people to pray for me. I need to, I need to not sin. I need to pray. Because I need God's approval for this test. God has got to hook me up. <clears throat> and then our righteousness is really shown for what it is after we take the test. What happens? We forget God we sin again. We stop praying. Our, our devotional life is no longer vibrant. The picnic next Sunday sounds more exciting than church. We don't really need God anymore. We've, we got God to do for us what we wanted Him to do, and that was to pass the test. And now that it's done, we don't really need God anymore. Guys, that is not Christianity. Another example, I speak with guys every week who have been in, uh, incarcerated in jail. And you know what everybody in jail prays for? Or does? Rather, I already gave it away. They pray. Or at least a lot of the dudes that I talk to. Man, when I was locked up, I was praying all the time. I was telling God, like, if I get out of here, or when, as, soon as, as soon as I get out, like I am going to be yours. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to preach if you want me to preach. And then what happens? What, what, what they tell me? They get, out of, they get out of jail, and they forget. They don't need God anymore. They're out. They got what they wanted. And they stop praying. I, I, I hear confessions of this almost every week. Or let's take prayer life itself as another example. When 
you sin, all right? You know the sins that you struggle with. So whatever it is, you know, some, this is a little side note. This is kind of a freebie here. Uh, I heard someone say one time, you know what sin you're struggling with uh, in this way. Whenever anyone talks about sin, what is it that comes to your mind? That's probably the ongoing unrepentant sin in your life. And we all have one. At least almost always. What is the sin that comes to your, to your mind? So when you sin, when you fall back in this, into sin, do you feel like you can go before the throne of God and pray? Do you feel the freedom to say, God, I confess, like I've fallen once again. I, I'm a sinner. I, I, I see my sin ever before me. I'm so broken and I come to you again. Or do you feel like you need to wait a couple days of, of uh, um, you know, being good before you can go back to the throne of God? Like, I can't pray right now because I'm struggling with this. Because this thing just happened. So now I have to wait a couple days. I've got to prove to God again that I'm, that I'm legit, that I'm good. I've got to feel better about myself so that way I can stand before God all clean and happy and a do-gooder, right? Is that not the, the patterns and the habits of many of our prayer lives? God, forgive us for our works-oriented salvation. Forgive us for making a mockery of your grace. Is his grace not sufficient for all of your life? You see, God approves, God approves of the righteous. If you are among the righteous generation, God approves completely of your life. Not because you were perfect, but because Jesus was perfect and because his perfection has been gifted, it has been granted to you. Final question we're going to ask in this, this whole Psalm 1 series is this. How can this be? How, 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 how can anyone really claim to be among the trees? How can anyone really claim to be righteous? Friends, while the, while the doom of the ungodly is secure, it's happening, it's been prophesied. Those who are chaff will not last. While the doom of the ungodly is fixed, no one who has opened their eyes to Christ and who has looked to Jesus for forgiveness and salvation, no one will be turned away. No matter who you are, even if you are a very mean parent that yells at your kids, right? Even if you're a liar, even if you're a rapist or a child molester or a murderer, anyone who looks to Christ is forgiven. And here's why. God opens our eyes to our sin, to the fact that we are proud, the fact that we are hungry for more, the fact that we are lusting, the fact that we are greedy, the fact that we are angry, that we have this temper. He opens our eyes to our sin. And when the 
rapist and the child molester and the, the, the murderer and the parent that yells at their kids and the liar and the proud, arrogant person, when they open their eyes to their sin, they see Christ. And what they see on Christ is all of the fury and the wrath and the punishment of God that is due them. It should be theirs. The fury and wrath and punishment that God has for the molester, for the murderer, for the rapist, for the, for the parent that abuses, all of that has been channeled onto Christ and they see Christ bear every bit of God's punishment for you on your behalf. And this great reversal takes place and your soul is no longer the same. You no longer look like you once did. But your soul is then transformed by the Holy Spirit of God and you are regenerated. You're made new and your soul now reflects the image of your Savior. And the reversal is that He takes your sin and that you take His righteousness. Friends, if you are a Christian, and you don't boldly explain to others the fact that you're righteous, but let me tell you why and how, then you're making little of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You have righteousness not of your own, but of Christ that has been plastered on your face because of the cross. And an approved workman is not ashamed of the gospel because it is the gospel of Jesus Christ that has made us alive, that has opened our eyes. So then we are not righteous because we have sinless perfection. We are righteous because of grace. Think about that. God doesn't grant you salvation because you've got your stuff together. God doesn't want you to, to get, it, get, it, get it right first before you come to the cross. God saves you while you are a sinner and he then is, has granted you righteousness and he has granted you his full 100% approval and he's watching over you and he recognizes you because of grace. You're not saved because you stopped smoking weed. You're not saved because you, you, you stopped uh, the, the anger problems. You're not saved because you got rid of the temper that you once had. You're not saved because you stopped drinking so much. You're not saved because you stopped hooking up, you're not sa- I mean, you name it, you're not saved because you don't have mental illness, you're not saved because of any of these things. You are saved because of Christ. You're saved because of the grace of God has been showered upon you through your faith in Jesus Christ who secured your salvation on the cross and forever perfected you in the eyes of God. That is why you are saved. And friends, that is why then you are moved toward holiness. That's why we choose to walk away from the sins because what we find is this. What we find is in, in this gospel 
is that what we currently have and what we have to look forward to in this life is that we are right now freed from the bondage of sin and we no longer have to continue in it like we once did. We can remove ourselves from our sin. We can master sin. It no longer is our master. We rule over it. And so then grace, and not duty, not law, but grace moves us and pushes us toward the face of Jesus Christ and toward the reflection of who He is and toward holiness and toward a life that is beautiful. And what we have to hope for is that one day we will stand before God and that He will look at us and He will say, I know you. I've been watching over your soul. I have approved of your entire life. Well done. Well done. Not because you did something great, because of what Christ did for you. Well done. And now forever come into my presence. And you don't get some mansion in the back. (laughs) You get the presence of God. The full, unending, beautiful, joyful, happy presence of God. Isaiah Chapter 60, verse 21. Then will all of your people be righteous and they will possess the land forever. They are the shoot that I have planted. Not they themselves. They didn't plant themselves. They are the shoot that I have planted. They are the work of, not their hands, they are the work of my hands. If you are a tree this morning, if you have repented of your sins and you've trusted in Jesus, then take heart this morning. Walk out of here bouncing with joy. If not on the outside, at least on the inside. Because God has looked at you and He has said, I've got you. I know you. I'm watching over you. I approve of you. And He will keep you until the end and He will say, well done. If you are chaff here this morning, if you are chaff, if you are searching for happiness outside of Jesus Christ, if you're searching for satisfaction outside of the way of Christ, don't wait another week to look to Christ. Because you're chaff, you might not have another week. Chaff are quickly blown away by the, by the wind. Chaff do not last You may be distracted this week and you may go somewhere else. You may not have another week, chaff. If you're chaff, look to Christ. It's all you can do. And what you'll find is that God does something in your hearts. What you'll find is that He uproots you from your previous environment and He plants you in the waters that are everlasting in Jesus Christ. Look to Christ this morning. Walk away from your sins. Trust in the gospel. Trust in the good news of Jesus Christ that God has given you forgiveness through his blood on the cross. Then all my people will be righteous. Isaiah 60, they will possess the land forever. They're the the shoot that I have planted. They're the work of my hands. Why? For the display of my splendor. For the display of my splendor. Listen, 
God delights in saving sinners. It's not just a duty that he has to do because you believe the right thing. God finds joy in saving sinners. God delights in taking chaff and turning chaff into trees. God delights in showering his grace on the people that don't deserve it. God delights looking at people who have earned nothing and saying, I approve of you because of Christ. He delights in saving sinners. He will delight in saving you. This morning, He has delighted in saving you. For those of you who have been a Christian for years, He's delighted in saving you for the last however many years you've been a Christian, and He will delight in saving you until your complete day of redemption. God delights in saving sinners. Why? And this is where it's all at. This is why we've been in this series. This is why we've been in the scriptures. This is why we're doing what we're doing. He delights in doing this work for us. He delights in changing us for the display of his splendor, for the renown of his name, so that Christ will be made famous in all of Baltimore City. That is why God would change you this morning. That is why God would take chaff and turn it into a tree. Thanks for listening. Let's let's pray. Father, we thank you for the fact that our uh, tree status has nothing to do with, with our works. For the fact that you know the way of the righteous, that you intimately know us, that you, that you recognize us, that you see us, and what you see is Christ plastered all over us, and, and we are your children, we have been bought with a price, and we are yours, and God, we thank you for the, the fact that you then watch over us, that you are watching over our souls, that you are walking with us, and that you will walk with us until the end, that we can trust that you will Help us every step of the way and that we will indeed persevere until the end. And God, we thank you for the fact that you approve of us, that you look at us and you say, I know you. Well done. Enter into my presence. God, we look forward to hearing that. If there is chaff in this room, if there is anyone who has been seeking salvation outside of Christ. They haven't repented of their sins. They haven't looked to Christ. I pray that this morning, even right now as I'm praying, that they will repent of their sins, that they will walk away from their life that they've been trying to live, and that they will just simply look to Jesus. That they'll look to the cross and that they'll see your punishment for them placed onto the head of Christ. And that they will see Christ's righteousness gifted to them. God, make trees among us. May we all be able to stand strong, be rooted in the gospel, and bear fruit like a tree. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.